0: This morning, we are covering the mystery of marriage. And we'll start by thinking about love. How do you define love? How, how would you explain it if someone asked? So that they would actually understand what you're talking about. How would you define it? And, and how would that definition change if you had to consider what our culture has to say about love. Uh, here, here are a few examples. How about uh, this one from Love Story? Now, I'm not talking about the Taylor Swift song from 2009. I'm talking about a movie from 1970 called Love Story. Now some, Many of you probably do not know this movie at all. You know, like, what on earth is he talking about? But the line from the movie you probably do know, and that is that love means never having to say you're sorry. Aww. Not cute. Oh. That's ridiculous. Right? I mean, think, just think about how that works out. How would that look like in any sort of long-term relationship? Because we obviously mess up, we obviously wrong one another, and when we do, the best thing to do is to say, "You're sorry." The best thing to do is apologize. Love can't possibly mean never saying you're sorry. Others might say love means never having a fight. That sounds, that sounds attractive. I mean, I like that idea, never having a fight. But think about who, who is it you don't typically fight with? How about your postal carrier? That's one person you don't typically fight with, right? Your dentist. Have you ever fought with your dentist? Hopefully not your neighbor across the street. Maybe some of you have, but hopefully not, right? These are people we don't typically argue with. Does that mean we love them? Well, no, of course not. Arguing can't be a definition of love. In fact, the people closest to you are the ones you most likely will disagree with at some point. And love is actually working that out and being committed to the relationship. And another one, which I would say is incredibly popular, is the idea of love at first sight. Really about attraction, physically drawn, romantic, emotionally connected, passionate, which love certainly does look like. But if it's only that, then it's not going to last very long, right? I'm not as beautiful as I used to be. I know that's hard to believe. I'm glad you're laughing because that makes me feel better. But there's really no physical romance that can survive 50 plus years of marriage. That just doesn't sustain the relationship. So so how do we then define love? How do we describe it? How do we explain it to others? Well, I I think it, it, it does look like many different things, but it can be best described often in a picture. You know the saying, a picture worth a thousand words because you, you, can, you can kind of see it and it, it makes sense to you. So how about a biblical example for us this morning? The love story in the book of Ruth. I mean, Ruth, Ruth was in need. She was in need of a close relative to rescue her from the inevitable poverty she actually chose as a young widow following her mother-in-law back to Israel. And Boaz steps up and initiates, a worthy man above reproach who provides, protects us, and defends Ruth. In fact, the text says in chapter 2, verse 13, that she found favor in his eyes. But it certainly wasn't just about romance and, and passion. Instead, it, it actually took six to eight weeks before anything actually came about. And and Boaz was old, and Ruth was young, yet when you read this story, maybe you're tempted to think of it like, like a Hollywood couple, right? The, the old actor with the young, gorgeous woman. That's often how we read these Bible stories, but the text never tells us how Boaz and Ruth look. It never gives us a hint that there was some sort of attraction physically. Because love is not defined by physical attraction, but by a commitment and a promise to, to willingly and joyfully lay down our lives for another person. And this, this is what Boaz does. So he can redeem Ruth to be his wife. From verse 11 in chapter three, he says, do not fear Ruth, for I will do all that you ask. So I hope that picture That picture is helpful. But of course, there's no greater picture of love in all the world than the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for the church. And this is where we're going to concentrate this morning in Ephesians 5 and allow that picture to impact every single one of our lives, whether, whether we're married or not, whether you're married now or not. Marriage may be a future possibility. Either way, the picture is helpful for us so we know what love looks like and how to define it and how to explain it to others. So let's, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians 5. It's on page 978, the Black Bibles. Also grab uh, your outline there in the bulletin. And let's just kind of reground ourselves, remind you where we are in Ephesians, right? Chapters 1 through 3, we're all about the beauty of Christ and now chapters 4 through 6 are about the beauty of the church. So specifically talking about our relationship with one another, Paul's already addressed members of the body, but now he's going to move into the home talking specifically about husbands and wives. So follow along as I read Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, let's start by actually pointing to marriage as a picture of the gospel. And that's, that's easy to see because all the repeated connections between husband and wives and Christ in the church. Did you, did you catch all the phrases in there that Paul references Christ in the church? It's actually six times in just 12 verses. If you look, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. Then verse 28, Paul says, in the same way, in the, in the same way as what? Well, husbands should love their wives in the same way Christ loves the church. Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So the repeated connection confirms marriage is supposed to be a glorious picture of the gospel. And then Paul goes to his summary statement in verse 31. He actually quotes Genesis 2. Well, think about the context of this. This is is God creating the world in six days. First three days, he forms the earth and forms the universe. Second three days, he fills the earth, including the creation of man. And right after God says, it is not good for man to be alone, he parades all the animals in front of Adam. Adam names them. But none are fit to be his helper. So God causes Adam to fall asleep, takes a rib out of his side, fashions woman, and then the quote highlighted here in Ephesians 5.13, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church all the way from creation. Now, why in the world is the coming together of a man and a woman in the context of marriage a mystery? Well, it's a mystery because of the deeper meaning. The marriage isn't simply about marriage. In fact, it's not ultimately about marriage at all. Instead, it's about how Christ relates to his bride, the church, and how the church responds to her groom, Jesus Christ. That's why marriage is a picture of the gospel. Because it's a living parable, a living parable of how Christ and the church relate to one another, leading, responding to one another. So God patterned marriage very purposefully after the relationship between his son and the people of God. Paul says, this mystery is great, as in the mystery of marriage, but I'm referring to Christ and the church. So a simple yet transformative idea For us to grab hold of this morning. The more we understand Christ's love for his bride, the church, and the church's response to her bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, the better all of our marriages will be. So let's start by looking at number two here then, the relationship of Christ and the church. First question there How does Jesus approach his relationship with the church? Well, in a word, Christ initiates with the church. He, he engages. Christ takes the first step. To so Look again at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you see all the things that Jesus has done? He's the one who's initiating with us, even in his willingness to take on humanity and dwell among us in the first place. He initiated the rescue mission to save us from our sins. Just think about how Ephesians 2 puts it, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and our minds, and we're by nature children of wrath. But God, here we are, God initiating, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God initiated with us. So what does this mean we sinners are like? Well, we're we're like drowned people in the sea. We're not moving. We're not swimming. We're not holding on to a life preserver or waiting to be rescued. That's not the picture Scripture gives us at all. We're dead. We're completely dead. And God made us alive. So he initiated with us. And how do we know that for certain? Well, dead people don't initiate. So God had to take the first step. Well, Christ loves the church. God pursued us through Christ who loves the church. In fact, very, going back to the very beginning of Ephesians, verse four it says he chose us, he set, us, set his affection on us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And notice the order, because he, he first chooses his bride, then he makes her holy and blameless. In other words, Christ doesn't choose his bride the same way we do. He doesn't look for the most attractive, intelligent, and faithful woman in the world. Instead, he chooses the unlikely and unworthy and then makes her, us, attractive, wise, and faithful, which should be very humbling to us because there's nothing inherently beautiful in any of us. Romans 9.16 says it this way, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, not on our own efforts or actions, but on God who has mercy. The free, unconditional love of God. That's what that is. It's seen most clearly in the fact that Jesus loved us and initiated with us. 1 John 4 says this, and this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his Son. To be the propitiation for our sins. Now, do you see how Christ's love for the church can't be separated from Christ's willingness to die for the church? So, we've already seen that in Ephesians five twenty five: husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. This is talking about His death, His burial, His resurrection. But that truth is declared all over the New Testament, right? I mean, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Or a little later in John chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, than he lay down his life for his friends. Now, Christ didn't win his wife like most guys do today. That's not how it worked. No, he, he paid a dowry. He purchased his bride. And that dowry was his own life. So Christ not only loved his bride, initiating, pursuing, making the first move, setting his affection specifically on her, on us, with a special, redemptive, regenerating love that raised her life. She was dead in her trespasses and sins. But it was also a self-sacrificing love. Jesus willingly paying it all in order to purchase us with his own precious blood. And he did it while we were still helpless, hopeless, sinful and ungodly from Romans 5, 6 through 8. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's because Christ initiates and, and because, because Christ initiates with the church, loves the church, and dies for the church, God made Christ head over the church in order to lead the church. So Christ leads the church. Listen again, back to Ephesians 1. Then God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And here we go. And God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Christ is the head of the church, which means he leads the church. And we willingly and joyfully submit, follow, and obey him. And why wouldn't you want to submit to, follow, and obey a leader like that, who willingly willingly loved you and chose you, set his affection on you, paid it all, sacrificing his whole life, his own life, to purchase you. So that he can then provide, protect, and defend you and secure a place for you for all eternity. So that where he is, we may be also. I mean, who doesn't want that? Christ initiating, point A, puts us in the position of, point B, our joyful response to the church to, church, to Christ as the church. So the church responds to Christ. Look again at verses 23 and 24. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now notice, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything. In everything to their husbands. So how does the church respond to Christ? Well, it starts by submitting to him in everything. Now, there's obviously a time when the church is not the church, meaning there's a time when a person is not submitting to Christ. They're doing their own thing, leading their own life, convinced that they know what's best. Proverbs 16 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. And that's why 1 Peter 5, 5 says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Essentially, submit yourselves to God that he might exalt you at the proper time. So the church submitting to Christ has to begin with faith and repentance. Each of us, faith and repentance, losing our lives for Christ's sake so that we might gain it for all eternity. So it means coming to faith in Christ, where we've counted the cost and made the decision, I'm with him I'm submitting my life to his leadership and following his ways because my life is not my own. It has been bought with a price. It's been purchased. Galatians 2.20 says it this way. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So submitting your life to Christ is in direct response to his finished work on the cross, which means you wholeheartedly believe in Jesus. And it just doesn't, doesn't just promise to save you, but also to sanctify you. Which is point number two, the church sanctified by Christ. Look here, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the word so that he might present the church to himself in all her splendor without spot or wrinkle that she might be holy and without blemish that's the promise that Christ will continue the good work he started in us the promise of sanctification that god will mold and shape us more and more into the image of his own dear son And notice how he says he will do it, by the washing of the word. This is how it works. The spirit of God using the word of God to transform the people of God. As Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit. In Galatians, Paul calls them the fruit of the spirit. It's really just evidence of sanctification. Love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength because he first loved us, first saved us, and first redeemed us. So, So we're not talking about checking off boxes in a dutiful obedience, but a joyful obedience, a willing participation, a loving response. So marriage is a glorious picture of the gospel because it's been designed by God to reflect a far greater reality about the union between Christ and the church. And when we spend time thinking that through, meditating on how Christ willingly initiated with the church, loved the church, died for the church, and leads the church, and how the church joyfully responds, submitting to Christ's lead, we have a much better understanding of what we're trying to accomplish in our marriages. What's so amazing about this whole thing is that when we follow God's commands, we actually experience our greatest joy. And at the same time, we're bringing him the most glory. That's how he set it up. That's how it actually works. That's the glorious wisdom of God because he created us to have joy in our marriages when we follow his design. So let's start with the husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 28, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. That's a very helpful way to think about this. Nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Verse 33, therefore, let each of you love his wife as himself. So the clear command is, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So men, listen when I tell you. We take our cues from Christ. We're called to lead our wives, our kids, and our families with the kind of love, the kind of love that Christ had for us, which is a sacrificial love, willing to pay it all, willing to lay down our lives for them. Now, laying down our lives for one another may seem like a tall task, kind of like taking a bullet. But in some ways, that would be easier, don't you think? Much easier than laying down our lives every single moment of every single day, of every single week, of every single year for the rest of my life because really, if you take a bullet, you really only need that, that second of clarity, right? You just dive in front, and then it's all over. You've done it. You are a hero. But what we're talking about here is daily sacrifice. Just the thought of 30 years of dishes and laundry makes some men want to take a bullet. You weren't supposed to laugh that hard. <laughs> so it's just so true for us, isn't it, then? It's so true. We'd rather take that split second decision than the idea of serving and sacrifice day after day, moment after moment. And husbands living for your wives, serving and sacrificing for the rest of your life. And not only that, we're called to lead our homes by serving right? There's, there's nothing in our homes that we as men should not be willing to do to serve our wife and our kids. I mean, just listen to the words about Jesus. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So man, that needs to be our orientation. If we're really willing to obey and follow Jesus, then we need to be willing to be the chief servant in our homes, as well as at our jobs, and our communities, In other words, husbands who come home from their work and think their day is done, treat their home like their own castle, their favorite chair chair like a throne, and their wife and kids like servants who have a duty to their headship as soon as they walk through the door. Oh, these husbands, they have abandoned Ephesians 5. And similarly, the example of Jesus. Remember, Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Jesus emptied himself and went to the cross. Jesus was obviously in the middle of the mess because Jesus initiated and Jesus engaged. Reminds me of a scene from that award-winning classic movie, The Incredibles. The scene where the kids are fighting and running around the dining room table, totally out of control, and mom, who is a girl, yells for her husband's help, Honey! And the reply from the other room is, Kids, listen to your mother. <laughs> Mr. Incredible is reading his newspaper, lost in another world, and the mom has her hands on each one of the kids, and because she's elastic, grows literally being stretched to the max. And she yells, "Bob, it's time to engage. Do something." We can be thankful that Jesus didn't have to be yelled at. He was engaged, humble, lowly. I was initiating. I was coming alongside, lifting up, serving, sacrificing, faithfully ministering the gospel. Oh, man, how about us? Do we have to be yelled at to engage, to initiate, to serve and sacrifice for our wives and kids? Jesus is the standard. He is what it looks like to serve and sacrifice for our wives. And then we go back to Boaz, just like Boaz in the book of Ruth. A man above reproach. He was always providing, protecting, defending. Always serving and sacrificing even before they got married. You never got a sense that this man was about himself. He wasn't lazy, selfish, or self-consumed. He was actually about others. He willingly sacrificed in order to purchase Ruth as his bride. Not, Not out of duty, out of delight. So here's a question to consider, speaking of duty, Men, do you realize we are, we're never off duty when it comes to our wives and our families? We serve at work, and then we serve at home. And it's not a duty, it's a delight. Verse 29, nourishing and cherishing. There should be an ever-present twinkle in our eyes when it comes to serving our wives. Proverbs 18.22 said, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. So let's cultivate our delight in our wives, and enjoy them. Nourish the relationship, cherish the time together, and never get over your love for your wife. Now notice again verse 28 where it says, he who loves his wife loves himself. Now what does that, that mean there? Oh, it means when you, when you take care of your wife, love her and give yourself up for her, she will respond. And of course, she will respond because, because God knows what he's doing. A man who initiates like this will have a happy wife. And where there is a happy wife, there is a happy home. So, there's no easier man to follow in the world than a man who serves and sacrifices like Jesus did. And a wife who knows her husband joyfully puts her needs, before her own, is an incredibly easy man to submit to. And so we come to the wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Which is what Ephesians 5 commands wives to do. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And at the end of verse 33... It's very helpful when it actually says, let the wife see that she respects or honors her husband. Now, we all know, we all know that submission is a dirty word in our culture. But that's because our culture has a very different definition of leadership. Wives, you're called to respond to your husbands as the church responds to Jesus. So you're called to submit to your husband at the head of the home, the leader, which means you recognize and honor his responsibility to provide, protect, and defend you. So there's a, a disposition to yield and an inclination to follow. And I say it that way because hold on to your seats here, sisters. Your husband is not perfect. I hope you're taking notes. Maybe you did already know that. I just didn't want to assume anything. Yes, your husband is not perfect, but Jesus is perfect. And you're obviously not commanded to follow your husband into sin or foolishness. That that wouldn't make any sense. But even in that situation, a wife with a submissive spirit, and by that we really mean a righteous spirit, an attitude and a behavior that demonstrates that she doesn't like resisting his leading and longs for him to walk away from his sin, his foolish behavior, and lead righteously. Now, I also want to say that this call to submit to your husband does not mean you check your personality at the door or that you become sort of a doormat to be walked on or limp in yielding dishrag without thoughts, opinion, or your own sense of clarity. That's ridiculous. Women are just as intelligent, thoughtful, and capable as men. So there's no sense of putting anyone on a lower level with some sort of condescending attitude. I mean, you just think of Ruth. Ruth was a worthy woman. She was a hard worker. She had garnered the respect of all around her. And she loved the Lord, honored her mother-in-law, and joyfully submitted to Boaz. Asking him, in the language of the day, to spread his wings over her, his servant, and redeem her. No attention there. Because God created men and women to have total equality in their relationship before God. And as husbands and wives to have complementary roles in marriage. So, wives, you're called to submit to your husbands and commanded to honor and respect them. Which means... You want to have an orientation of asking, how can I be most helpful to this man? And you don't have to guess because the thing you should do is just ask, how can I be most helpful to you? I mean, leading is kind of hard. It's stressful, can be overwhelming. It's exhausting and it differs for every husband out there. They all feel the challenge in different ways. So honor your husband and respect your husband and just be willing to say, thanks for all you do. I love you and I'm for you. I know it's not easy. I want to be easy to lead. So how can I be most helpful to you? Your husbands will be thrilled and the the truth is it'll make them better leaders for it. And when these roles On both sides are embraced and lived out, it's beautiful. It's like watching a couple dance, provided they actually know how. You see them moving, right? You can't even really tell that the man is leading. But it doesn't work without one leading and the other following. It's a beautiful picture. I mean, it, it just doesn't really get any better than when we follow the example of Christ in the church in our respective roles as husbands and wives because we experience our greatest good and God receives his greatest glory because we're walking in obedience to his commands and he created us. So he knows what brings our greatest joy. Husbands loving their wives, serving and sacrificing for them. And wives submitting to their husbands, joyfully following them. But there are a number of ways we typically get off track. So three things I want to point out this morning. One is that marriage takes work. Two, stop pointing fingers. And three, which is very helpful to realize, is that intimacy is the fruit of a good marriage. So one, marriage takes work. So, not sure if you realize it, but this isn't the natural inclination of our hearts, is it? To love our wives and to submit to our husbands. It's not that way in general, to be others-oriented. So it's something we have to work at. No matter how long you've been married, you have to work on it. Having all these categories in place for when you get married, for those who are not, is really helpful because then you have more realistic expectations that it takes work. So here's the encouragement. Start with Ephesians 5 and you kind of do lead and follow, right? You see the lead and follow like Christ and the church. And then you allow 1 Corinthians 13 to fill in all the details and start asking yourself, am am I, I loving my spouse according to God's definition of love? Because according to 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. And the ultimate statement for marriage, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Just go through that list and ask yourself, am I loving my spouse like that? And of course we're failing. But wherever we're failing, start working on it. Put off selfishness and put on patience. Put off being irritable and put on being kind. Put off insisting on your own way and put on acceptance and appreciation and insisting on their way of doing things. You could just start with the dishwasher. That's just one good place to start. Loading the dishwasher do it her way just do it her way all sorts of areas of application for us here because here's the point it takes work to have a great marriage let the bible let the bible be your guide and work hard at loving your spouse secondly stop pointing fingers now if you'll notice this passage Nowhere in these verses is there what we call a conditional statement, the classic if-then. What does that mean? Men, you don't get to initiate, love, serve, protect, provide, defend your wives only if she honors and respects you and is totally submissive. That ain't it. And wives, you don't get to submit to your husbands only if he leads graciously, reads your mind perfectly. I was and sacrifices for you and your family with total humility, wisdom, and kindness. The truth is, we're not supposed to be watching for what they're not doing, right? We have enough stuff to worry about of our own. So the Bible commands us to do our part, regardless of what they do. And here's the glory. When you are both pursuing the other person, When the husband loves his wife and the wife submits to her husband, the marriage will will soar and you will not be pointing fingers. So get into the habit of watching and pointing out, if we're going to point fingers, let's point out what we're doing right. Focus on that, right? Now, we can't ignore problems, but let's balance it out. So, if 80% is good, let's spend 80% of our time focused on the 80% that's good. And only 20% of the areas that need work, rather than starting at the bad and ignoring the good, focus on the good, appreciate the good, and stop pointing fingers. Thirdly, intimacy is the fruit. Intimacy is the fruit of a good marriage. You know, it's a, it's a classic problem for men who are sexually frustrated in their marriages to again point the finger at their wives and what she's not doing for him. Rather than following the instructions that are so clearly provided right here in Ephesians 5. So men, listen to me when I say intimacy is the fruit of a husband who's smart enough to initiate to love serve, sacrifice, provide, protect, and defend his wife. The meaning there is that your wives will naturally respond when you love them like Christ loved the church and willingly laid down his life for her. God knows what he's doing. When you love your wife like that, the fruit of intimacy will increase. And of course, all of that flows. All of that flows from a heart that is wholeheartedly submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ with lives on both sides, husband and wife, lives being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. But of course, if that's not where you're at, where you're at then that's the first place to start. Repent, believe, and be saved and be transformed by the glorious gospel so that we all, we all might look to Christ and the church, and the model for how we are to love one another so that our marriages may be a glorious picture of the gospel and that God might be glorified through them. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, we just see this beautiful picture of marriage that you've put together and we recognize the mystery of it really being about about your relationship with us, the church. And if we keep that in scope and in mind, how beautiful a picture it paints for us and how helpful it is for us to then see how we as husbands and wives should live with one another. But I pray that the gospel is clear in our minds through this passage, that we see the beauty of it even as we think about the challenge to ourselves as husbands and wives and to those who may someday be married, those who will be brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters to those who are married, to be helpful to one another, building up the church. And as it applies to all those who are your followers, the church submitting to Christ. Lord, I pray that we would have hearts of humility of serving and sacrificing wherever the opportunity arises. We praise you, Lord, for this good word. In Jesus' name, amen.